the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And you are as surprised as I am that Seth Liebson's voice is not emanating from your radio. Instead, it is I, Hugh Hallman, the former mayor of the city of Tempe and a uh, longtime has-been or never was arguably in politics. Uh, I am joined with my significantly more uh, intelligent and uh, handsomer son, Louis, uh, who will do his best to disown the fact that I just used that as the intro. We are here today because Seth is getting ready for the crisis at the border event that your KKNT 960 The Patriot is putting on at the Embassy Suites in Scottsdale. That's the one that's actually at 5001 North Scottsdale Road. It's at the uh, northeast corner of Scottsdale Road and Chaparral. There are a handful of tickets available, and I would encourage you to go to the website and take a look uh, and join these folks. You've got Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, Congressman Andy Biggs, and, of course, our own Seth Liebson, who will be there uh, serving as host and MC for the event. Uh, it should be fantastic. It starts at 6 o'clock. Lewis and I will be uh, joining the fine folks there at about 6.15, depending on how quickly we can get ourselves there. But we hope you'll join us as well. So again, go to the website, take a look, and see if uh, you don't have a little bit of time to join us this evening at 6 o'clock in Scottsdale for the crisis at the border event. No, it's not the border between the city of Phoenix and the city of Scottsdale or the city of Scottsdale and the city of Tempe arguing over whose alleyways and parks homeless should be uh, camping in. Instead, it is about our southern border and uh, the disaster that has uh, befallen humanity there. Uh, we'll get to that in a bit, but uh, I'm going to kick it off to Lewis because his idea for what we ought to cover today is populism. And, Lou, why don't you give folks a sense of setting the table and what that looks like? So that's exactly right. We were going to spend the whole show today talking about populism, of all things, which might strike some people as a little bit strange, but we have some reasons for this. So populism reemerged onto the American political scene about five years ago with the election of President Donald Trump. Time magazine in 2017 uh, described populism as its word of the year at that point. And so there has been a lot of sort of collective wailing and gnashing of teeth by the media and others trying to talk about what populism is and what populism wants. And I think that we would like to take the time here today to go into this in a little more detail and unpack it. And so, the, again, the, the, the notion was because uh, Donald Trump is somebody to be excoriated by the mainstream media that the concept of populism is a bad thing. Now, I happen to have some grave concerns over the direction that populism can take. Uh, but effectively, populism is the idea that some political leader or uh, uh, spokesperson is really trying to gather forces to take on elites of one form or another. And we've had a variety of people, even in modern times, under that uh, beyond Donald Trump. Donald Trump wanted to take on the, the swamp monsters of Washington, D.C., 
uh, but certainly Bernie Sanders. Has uh, an element of populism to him very much. Absolutely, because he wanted to take on corporate interests and the wealthy, right. uh, the 1%. And his goal was, as a, that kind of a populist, to take on those interests on behalf of the folks he believed were following him. And we saw that emerging again out of the uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street movement after the Great Recession. But there's an even even larger you know, uh, uh, tradition where you see this kind of increasing anti-elite rhetoric. Ronald Reagan, I believe, popularized the phrase the silent majority, which was, I would argue, a very populist move in an attempt to unify his position and masses with the majority of those in America. And having been a student of Ronald Reagan, that's where I think we'll part company. Not that he didn't use populist rhetoric in order to unite his followers, but that that is, I think, where you and I have uh, some grave concern about the direction that populism has taken uh, for the Republican Party, in contrast to typically being a Democratic Party tool. It is a tool uh, to unite one's interests gr- interest groups. So I, I would even stop you there. I don't even think that we ought to say that it's a Democratic Party tool per se. In my mind, populism is frankly politically agnostic in that it's not right versus left per se, but everything to do really with the structure of the society at hand and how the conversation, how the discourse of the people, in quotes, versus the elites, in quotes, is going. Right. And 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 fundamentally, it is, if you're feeling on the outs, there's an elite group that uh, it has put you on the outs. And that, I think, is fundamentally, is a political philosophical matter, why I have trouble with populism as a movement or as a sense of being, because it is that there is a group of people who are in power and you are feeling out of power and believe you need to have your interests represented to take power for your benefit. So there's something actually that that, that sparks in me that I don't think we discussed previously, but that description that you just gave implies to me that populism is necessarily then a very reactive political doctrine or or political uh, uh, space philosophy because if you are defining yourself oppositionally, which is to say that you define your movement in terms of what the elites have done and how you oppose them, then that very much puts you at the mercy of those pre-existing elites to set the terms of conversation. Precisely. And so – uh, you're at the mercy of the elites who have, you're viewing as having taken power and are exercising it against your interests, and you'd like to take it. So let's put that some context here. Um, we're now in a battle in the Republican Party over what its philosophical groundings have been. And since I was a very small child working at my mother's knee for people like Barry Goldwater, sorry, Lou, I bore you with history. Uh, those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. And in this instance, the the people I was raised by, the politicians I heard and listened to, were talking about a political philosophy. And that's – Seth and I get into these arguments over what is conservatism. And he and I disagree somewhat on what is conservatism. He has been making the argument recently that conserv- today's conservatism is true conservatism. And I've argued that if you look at the real groundings from our – mentor uh, Harry Jaffa and those who helped give rise to the modern Republican Party uh, that gave rise to Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan, the political philosophy was one that was dependent on liberty. 
and I think you among few, identify the French Revolution as the source of the three sort of main political philosophies that we have combating against one another, which are? Those would be uh, egalite, fraternite, and I'm sorry, egalite, liberté, and fraternité, to and, use the old order correctly. And so egalite means? Uh, equality, right? The the demand for equity that we see, again, continually popularized on the, the left and taken to its logical extreme in the 20th century under the guise of communism. And then you've got liberty, which I would argue was the foundational principle on which the uh, liberal modern, democracies emerged. Well, yes. liberal democracies from the founding of this country, certainly. But even after that, the reemergence of the Republican Party as a force that began really uh, in the in the late 40s and early 50s uh, to uh, not in the Eisenhower sense, but in the Barry Goldwater sense of a philosophical groundings that was based on individual rights. So this is more the party. Liberty. This is more the party you mean that is in opposition to the Great Society of the 1960s, rather than the the 40s and 50s, you would say? Well, but except that the philosophy that gave rise to Barry Goldwater in the 60s was built beginning in the late 1940s and early 50s, precisely based on what had happened during the uh, Great Depression right. and turning us into a society that was doling out benefits to a certain class of people. And that was an iteration of populism from the Democratic side. And I think uh, you remind me that really the first version of that in the 20th century were the populists, Teddy Roosevelt's. Teddy Roosevelt's populists. So Teddy Roosevelt is, this is not the first time we've had this schism in the Republican Party. Teddy this is probably the seventh one, actually, that we've had to date. Fair enough. But Teddy Roosevelt in the early 1900s uh, ran against his own vice president uh, for the uh, presidency. Uh, William Howard Taft had become president. And and uh, Frank uh, or, uh, Teddy Roosevelt didn't feel like he was being honored enough by that president and so ran against him as a populist, the Bull Moose Party, and started gathering up specific interests groups to support him, dividing the Republican Party in half, and hence Woodrow Wilson rose to the presidency of the Democratic Party. So with that table set, uh, I think Lewis really wanted to sort of start teasing out how how did we get here? Right. And more importantly, I, I think... Why did we get here as well as how? So here we are on the uh, verge of the 2022 election. The current administration holding also the House and the Senate likely is going to face some decent opposition. How does one prepare for that in the light of the fact that we've got a Republican Party that's in, in a bit of tatters, but also divided? We'll talk about that when we come back. We're on KKNT 960, The Patriot. We look forward to your calls at 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. No, we're not going to talk about baseball or small talk. It'd be the wrong station to talk baseball and small talk. Well, that's what they do on uh, the, uh, the left side of the aisle. Here we are to talk about big picture issues, and uh, Lewis, I think I'm going to call on you to lay out the the issue of the day for uh, preparing for the 2022 uh, cycle of the election and what we're facing currently under the banner of populism. Right. So our entire point, I think, for for this hour and the next two is to dissect for you what has been going on in the last 
decade, but also the last hundred years or so of American politics with the rise of populism. And, and we really want to take the time to understand this animal. And fundamentally, we, we, we sort of laid out some of the historical path already, talking about leaders like uh, uh, Donald Trump and Teddy Roosevelt. And we've sort of seen that, that populism has had a long and on road. the left, Bernie Sanders, for and example. And on the left, Bernie Sanders, absolutely. But we see that populism has had a very long road in America. And we've also established that it is principally about an opposition between a perceived elite and the people. Now, the big – Defining the people as your in your group. Your in-group, yes, that typically then does not hold lots of political power. But the the issue here, the key point is that populism, I think, has a specific problem inherent within it and inherent in the way that, that populists try to solve the electoral process. And that end up causing us the problems that we want to talk about. Right. And so th it's effectively this, that if you are a populist, you're, you are convinced that the central authority, whatever it is, is taking advantage of you. And so the solution to that is effectively to elect a leader who will go to Washington or wherever it is and fight on behalf of your interests. Now, the problem with this approach is that you, you have a system that is definitionally oppositional to you, whose rules are hostile to you, and in which you don't get a very high degree of play. You are then sending a representative to that system with the expectation that they will remain uncorrupted and have the fortitude to change the system from within and advance your causes while doing so. And this strikes me as very, very optimistic because it, it would seem much more logical to, instead of trying to send someone to Washington to fight for your interests, to bring home the bacon and shovel the pork barrel, that we should in your direction, and that's right. Where it, so the second that somebody thinks about using political power to advance quote their interests unquote, by definition they're saying that they don't like who's getting the bennies today. The benefits are being given to somebody else. Right. They want the benefits to come to themselves. Right. In contrast. So if you but if you're going to win that fight though, then you have to beat the special interests of everyone else who's controlling the distribution of the benefits. That's a small game. But, if the, the real question is then, it's not how do I go to Washington and fight on a zero-sum basis in this way. It's how do I go to Washington and prevent Washington from hurting, alienating, and waging war on my constituents, the little guys that are the populists. So rather than asking how do we send someone to Washington in order to advance our interests and fight for them, like that, the question is, how do we send someone to Washington to remove Washington's ability to influence us? But now you've just put in the contrast. The whole issue is that you've got the concept of populist being confused with the idea or being played out correctly, I suppose, that that it is my interests that are being sacrificed and I want somebody to go to Washington, D.C. and move the needle so that instead of one group getting the benefits, my group gets the benefits. Right. And but that so doesn't I, solve the game. I understand that. That's what exacerbates the game. So Donald Trump's populism uh, was, as it was being articulated by outsiders, that he was helping blue-collar workers. How? By stopping China from manufacturing and stealing things, by bringing manufacturing back home, and using government power to achieve that end. 
Let's talk about those as different steps and different things. You look at then who else is he uh, arguably trying to help? Well, he wants to stop people from crossing the border. And the populist view of that was that that was keeping uh, labor forces from outside of the United States from coming in and taking jobs of people who are natively born in the United States. If I can add to that as well, the other reason is that the most valuable economic piece of being an American is in fact our our exclusive option on the American labor market. But we'll get there, Lou. The point Sorry, is too I'm, much detail. I know. I'm just setting the table as to the point. Th- there is a way to argue that Donald Trump is a populist, but if one takes different looks at those issues, one can see a philosophical grounding that has nothing to do with trying to attract groupthink or uh, uh, wage in group politics, identity politics. I'm for the little guy. I'm for the blue-collar worker. I'm for the nativist, all the other kinds of phrases that get used with respect to Donald Trump, that instead you could then weave a philosophy that has nothing to do with identity politics. I agree. And I think that's what we want to get to here is those people who want to walk under the banner of populism have to understand that they're actually then taking on the weight of being somebody who's part of the problem. In my view, the part of the problem is that our founders created a structure that limited government's field of play. And populists, by definition, are trying to use the power levers in order to benefit their outgroup in exchange for the in-group. The elites that have power are to be substituted for the people I represent who don't have power. Let me let me interject here because I think that this might be a point where we're losing the audience. So we've we've we made, already lost you, right, folks? We, we, well, we've just established that populism has centers on this this elite dynamic, elite and the people sort of dichotomy of power, but. We're making the case right now that populism is about securing one's interests politically. I would like to distinguish that from how other political groups or political movements also try to achieve their interests. Because pop, like, it's not just that you want what you want and ergo you're a populist. It's that you have these these desires. You think you're, you're, you are – you perceive yourself as treated unfairly. You are opposed to these elites – and because you are approaching it in this reactive strategy that you see the elites as having the benefit and are reacting because of that, that's the populism. It's not the desire. It's the method. Yes, it's the use of government power to pull to oneself the political uh, – the, the results of political activity. And that is fundamentally why we're in the s- sick mess we're in today. I, I still don't think that that's quite right though because it's not about – all, all politics is about accruing benefit to yourself in some sense. I disagree. One of the early benefits of politics was assuring that we had a limited government. The at- reason that you want your limited government is because it will give you the freedom and the ability to move about the board as you would like unobstructed, accruing benefits to yourself. Let's give them the let's let's give the populace the intellectual charity of saying we're all after benefit here, but talk about it instead as a matter function. And Lewis, you just identified the difference. The difference is the source of the benefits. Yes. I want the freedom to exercise my power and authority as an individual to build what I want to build and benefit from my efforts. In contrast to people who want to use government authority to accrue benefits to themselves paid out by that government. 
I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We're on KKNT 960, The Patriot, filling in for Seth because he is getting ready for the crisis at the border event at the Embassy Suites this evening at 6. There are still tickets available. You can see Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, Congressman Andy Biggs, and Seth Liebson at 6 o'clock. Go to the website and let's get them. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I'm Hugh Hallman, filling in with uh, for Seth with Lewis Hallman, the smarter and better-looking uh, member of this uh, pair. We are on KKNT 960, The Patriot. The reason we're here is because Seth is getting ready for the crisis at the border event that is going to be held in Scottsdale this evening at 6 o'clock at the Embassy Suites. It's the Embassy Suites that's at the corner of Scottsdale Road and Chaparral. Uh, And at 6 o'clock, you'd be able to uh, witness the brilliance of Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, Congressman Andy Biggs. And, of course, all of that will be brought to you by Seth, who will be emceeing the event. And the the event starts at 6. There are tickets left uh, at uh, the website, so please visit the website and uh, take a look at your opportunity to see uh, four great minds at work on the crisis on the border. Uh, Lewis and I have been talking about, and we hope you're still listening, about populism and sort of the reason we're setting the table is that we think that the movement toward populism is probably fundamentally what has corroded the political life in the United States and the security that has been offered to us all as uh, beneficiaries of the prior uh, prior leaders, especially the founders of this country that gave us a constitution and limits on government power. And, Lewis, I think uh, you've you've got some examples of populism at, at their uh, most recent use. Sure. So this is less an example and more uh, sort of a case study, in fact. Um, th- one of the big issues that we see on the left, particularly in the, the realm of identity politics that's oft criticized, is in civil rights or or, or sort of uh, uh, race-based advocacy where we find that uh, these sorts of leaders who are advocating on behalf of their community rarely succeed and rarely actually reduce the aggregate amount of oppression going on in the community. And this is because— As they define it. As they define it. And this is because they have no incentive to do so because their entire job revolves around the the predicate that there is oppression ongoing and systemic. If they were to solve that problem, they would be writing themselves out of the job out of a job. You also see this very often with nonprofits, uh, foundations looking to research diseases and global causes and all sorts of things very rarely make any real progress towards these goals because, again, they'd write themselves out of a job. This is much the same with populist leadership. Well, uh, but let me let me broaden your point. In fact, with respect to charities, for example, rather than go out of business, they've succeeded in in solving the problem they were built to to solve. They then broaden their base and redefine what it is thereafter. So in the, in the civil rights analogy in in political life, you, you hear Martin Luther King's speeches about what his goals were to achieve. And having achieved much of that, that the goalposts got moved. Right. And now we've got new definitions of what it means to be oppressed, what racism means, institutional racism, and how we should be identifying that in our daily lives. In the, in the charitable sense of that, the March of Dimes still exists. Right. 
What was the March of Dimes intended to solve? There's a region that's called the March of Dimes. It was to collect dimes to help put money towards the uh, eradication of. Now go look it up on the Internet. What was the March of Dimes originally formed to solve? But it still exists. So one of the uh, one of the issues with that, and, and, and I think that this, this really does encapsulate the point that we're trying to make, the reason that these these civil rights movements and that these these sorts of charity or, or nonprofit movements don't work is because, again, they define themselves oppositionally. They define themselves against a problem, not rather than I'm sorry, rather than being for a specific position or for a type of thinking that will then be used as the basis from which to solve problems. And you see this again in populism with its with its obsession against the the anti-elite nature of things um, as well. And so because you don't actually have an intellectual tradition, because you don't have these sorts of of philosophical underpinnings, you then it's very hard to navigate yourself forward and concretely towards the policy goals that go to solving the problems for which you exist. So we've got lots of folks out there whose entire existence depends on their continuation of the very grievance, grievance that they claim they're trying to solve. And that may be part of why our politics are so goofed up, because there are professionals now who are out there who want to make sure that what they stand for is never resolved because then they become irrelevant and out of a job. I'm Hugh Holman. He's Lewis Holman. We're here on KKNT 960, The Patriot. Thank you for Seth Liebson letting us fill in. He's going to be uh, hosting the Crisis at the Border event in Scottsdale at 6 o'clock tonight. You can still get your tickets. Go to the website, and we hope to see you there this evening. Those of you who might be fans of uh, Franklin Roosevelt would have known that, of course, the March of Dimes was something he pushed to found. Uh, Another president who was looking for a vaccine to end a disease. And he was looking to end polio. He had himself suffered from it. Uh, And ultimately, uh, the March of Dimes and those efforts resulted in a vaccine uh, and, and work on polio that has had an amazing effect around the world. And yet the March of Dimes still exists. It now exists to eliminate health inequities, to improve the access to health care and ending preventable preterm birth and maternal death. That's what it now does. That however, is used as an example of how the solutions uh, that uh, folks argue that they're seeking in the political populist movements never get solved because that would put somebody out of business and off the political screen. Well, here we have uh, COVID-19. Instead of the March of Dimes, we have the March of Trillions. This is an effort where a president sought to get a vaccine, but during the year running around uh, this process, we had the left and the right politicizing this entire thing. And then what was their solution? To hand out $6 trillion to their different constituency bases. And Lewis, put that into context. That is more money than the United States spent on defense for every single year of World War II combined. And that's everything. It's not just our Army and our Navy and our Air Force. It's Lend-Lease, it's weapon shipments to the Allies, and it's all of it. Every dollar on defense. We blew through all of that in a year. 
all and, of the expenditure on World War II. And the, the contrast in World War II, we have, of course, the U.S. was put to help def- uh, to, to stop the spread of the Nazi regime. And ultimately, with fivefold more deaths than coronavirus with uh, that affected every part of the world, that burned down the global economy, that destroyed something like 80 percent of the capital stock in Eastern Europe. That's buildings, roads, animals, livestock, all of it gone. And here we are demonstrating the difference between a philosophical, philosophically based movement, which was ultimately bringing the country together. We were attacked by the Japanese and, uh, that brought us into the war, ultimately. There had certainly been a raging debate about whether the U.S. should engage in that war prior to that moment. But once the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor, then clearly the answer was we're going to war to protect the world from these kinds of forces. That was a philosophically based effort. There were reasons to protect humanity. There were interests, certainly from the United States perspective, on why, besides um, worrying about whether we'd be bombed again, ultimately there were not no real uh, further incursions on U.S. soil, and we instead spent troops, sent troops and uh, uh, materiel abroad to stop this attack on world peace and the sense of liberty that we believed others should have. That's quite a contrast from today's populism that gave rise to a $6 trillion expenditure. And if I may, if I can share the uh, populist's view directly on that expenditure, uh, I, I recall back at the very beginning of the pandemic when I was breathlessly I think we were all fairly, fairly, you know, breathless in our watching the news and, and wanting to see what happened. It was very uncertain back then. But one of the sources I routinely checked for information was uh, War Room Pandemic put on by Steve Bannon because I wanted to see what the populist angle of the news was as distinct from a lot of the mainstream media. And I was fascinated by a position that they took on there on the show very early in the in the pandemic Steve Bannon was advocating for massive bailouts of Boeing, which eventually were approved and were used by Boeing to buy back a significant amount of its uh, outstanding stock. Not to assure people's jobs were retained, but by to do a financial play in its own securities. Right. But the argument that Steve Bannon was making on, on Pandemic War Room was that we very much ought to bail Boeing out because Boeing is a great American company that employs tens of thousands of American workers. So you can see that there's an angle of looking out for the little guy if we're making the claim that it's for all of these workers. The problem is, is that the rationale is nonsense. If Boeing had gone into bankruptcy, all of the plant managers, all of the people who work there, they would have been in for a scare. But all of Boeing's extant equipment, all of the planes, the inventory, the capital stocks, it would have been bought by another company. That's how these things work. If an if a company goes into bankruptcy, its assets and jobs are not deleted from reality. They're very often acquired by another organization who can do things more efficiently. Or merely reorganized. Or merely reorganized. And what that means is the people holding the debts against that company take it in the shorts and the company goes forward uh, – continuing in its efforts to make money ultimately by shedding debt uh, and sometimes equity. And so it was outlandish to me that the populist, the populist position, the position purportedly looking out for the little guy, allied to the president at the time, you know, with, with a fairly, uh, uh, fairly on the same page, one would think, that the position there 
was to bail out the big businesses instead of the American family. And ultimately, we've been beating the drum about the fact that of that $6 trillion, a relatively small proportion of it went to people who were worried about being able to pay their mortgages or had lost their jobs as a result of the pandemic and all the various activities that took place. And only about 15% of that money went to American households. The rest of it went into governments of various levels and large businesses. And, and uh, hospitals. quantitative easing, and which quantitative was easing. the U.S. borrowing, uh, buying its own debt uh, with its uh, borrowed money so that we're moving money from one pocket to another. One of the grave reasons that Lewis and I are skeptical about how long this economic activity lasts, because at some point, a huge part of our economy has been, been uh, supported by massive debt incursion in this $6 trillion dollars plus use of that money to buy U.S. debt to keep interest rates artificially low, which is what's driving up real estate prices and market prices. So when folks say that inflation had been relatively low, they were looking, in my view, in the wrong place. Commodities instead of assets. That's correct. They were were looking at the consumer price uh, uh, index to see how consumer goods were moving instead of looking at the fact that the uh, the real hidden place that inflation is hit is in real estate assets and in market assets. Right. Which, interestingly, is fine for anybody with a large access to credit, those already pre-established relationships. Because if you've got capital and you've got credit, you can then get quite a lot of debt on your books on very favorable terms right now and buy up the competition. We want to know why all of these major corporations have expanded and done so well over the last decade because these are very, very favorable terms for growth because half of the competition, which is to say the American homeowner, is not buying right now because what that inflation does is it simply reduce, increases the the capitalization that the average American needs to get in and they're not in a position to save a down payment. Why don't you explain that? So if we have interest rates held artificially low, then home prices go up. Here in Arizona, we've been seeing home prices go up 9% annualized for two decades. But I think we can come back to this very quickly when we return. No, the, the the point is that as prices go up, you need a bigger down payment in order to be able to buy that. But if you're in the... If you're a big corporation, you already have the down payment. But if you're somebody like Lewis, who's an entrepreneur starting out younger you likely don't have the uh, down payment growth that you would need to get into the market immediately. That's the kind of stuff you're going to be listening to in the next hour. We'll uh, close this out shortly. Don't forget, 6 o'clock tonight, the crisis at the border. Go to the website. There are some tickets available, and you can see Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, Congressman Andy Biggs, and Seth Liebson at the Scottsdale uh, Embassy Suites at Scottsdale Road and Chaparral. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I'm Lewis Hallman, here filling in for Seth with my father, Hugh Hallman. And we have been spending the day talking about populism. Our contention is that populism does not serve those it proclaims to represent, and that it, in fact, is often very, very counterproductive to American life. It's not that populists themselves are wrong about every issue. It's not that populists are bad people. The problem instead is that populism itself is oppositional. It is defined as uh, being against a center core elite uh, and, and trying to seize power from them. The issue with that then is that this causes the uh, the leaders who rise up and lead populist movements to 
inevitably sway and and uh, be corrupted by the systems that they're trying to influence. They don't have a philosophical grounding that you can keep them pinned to because what their goal is is to move benefits from one group to another. That's exactly their group versus another right. group. Yes, indeed. And so we want to spend some time today then talking about sort of the hows and whys that this has happened and what we can do about it. But in the next hour, we're going to move the conversation to what the populists have right, because populism only exists in an environment in which we can see elite decay. Our institutions are not working as well as they used to. We see faults on all sides from everything from the Supreme Court to the COVID response to the media. And we're going to go through institutional failure, I think, when we come back at a, at a more broader basis. The goal the being, of course, that as we move forward to the 22 election, how do those of us who want to see a more limited government and uh, greater freedom of the individual protected, how we can work together to try to achieve the ends without destroying the folks who uh, are our current leadership class, at least on the on the uh, conservative side? Because within our conservative movement, there have been significant populists who use their their conservative credentials as the means by which they gain power to, again, benefit a certain group. And I think we all need to be watchful for when we hear those phrases, because it doesn't help any of us who want to see a more limited government and more opportunity for the individual to be subject to those folks who would use government power to achieve a different end. The ends uh, are the problem, that if you're using government power, you're using something that's a very dangerous elixir, and it can easily lead to the bad results. I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We are filling in for Seth Liebson here on KKNT 960, The Patriot. We invite you to give us a call if you'd like to join in the conversation about uh, the essence of politics and philosophy. We'd love to have you join us at 602-508-0960. And we look forward to seeing Seth this evening at the Crisis in the Border at the Border event at the Embassy Suites in Scottsdale at six o'clock. We'll hope you join us. Go to the website, and you can still get tickets. We look forward to uh, chatting with you in the next hour. We'll be back shortly. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 